Simon Sinek, an author, writer, speaker, thinker, he got really well known in the last few years uh, by writing different books and doing different TED, TED, TED Talks. Maybe you've seen him, but he wrote something called Start With Why, Find Your Why, and he basically gets up and gives a speech about it's not so much what you do, but why you do it. And he kind of looks at different corporations and businesses that say, people aren't buying what you sell, but why you sell it. And he's trying to motivate people to understand their why and find their why. Here's what we're seeing in our text. We, we see this idea of like, what's your why? So why do you do what you do? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you, why do you follow Jesus? Why are you here right now this morning? Why, why do you keep going? Why do you persevere when you feel like giving up? You know, and it's very important for us to identify our, our why. My son, you might know, he just turned, he's turning six this week, but he just joined a basketball league, not just joined, he joined a basketball league on Saturday mornings, and uh, we've been having a hard time with him to kind of engage in the game. Like, my wife was there one day when, like, a bird flew in the gym, and literally all the kids are just watching the bird fly around, and like, play the game, like, the game's going on, but they're, like, so excited about the bird in the gym. Just very difficult age to just do anything with. And for me, just as a dad and who I love basketball, it's just hard for me to be there, because all these little kids grab the ball, and they're traveling, and, like, fouling each other, and I'm not like, I'm like having a panic attack. I'm like, this is terrible basketball. It's just very difficult for me. I don't know. I just don't like going, but it's like, oh, I love my son, but this is hard for me to watch. Anyways, we've been having to try to, you know, do what any good parent does, which is bribe him to get them to shoot the ball because he won't like, he won't engage. We're like, hey, just shoot it. Like, we'll give you a dollar. Like anything you do. Like, so we've been trying to like motivate him. So we finally got him to like shoot the ball. So he scored his first points ever last week. And then yesterday, he scored two baskets. Now, here's our bribery. We're like, for every basket you score, we will give you a donut, right? So <laughs> he scores two, and you, I hear him yell in the court, I get two donuts! Like, so excited. And, and he told his coach and his friends, it was actually really sweet. Like, last week, there's this, this little boy who's, like, really big. He's actually really, really sweet. This little boy, he's, like, big on his team. He gets, like, all the rebounds. He's not afraid of the ball. I'm like, I, I love this kid. And so he gets all the rebounds, and Micah told, I saw him talking to this kid on the bench. I'm like, what are they talking about? They go back in the game in the second half, and this, like, bigger kid on his team is rebounding all the ball, and he'd run and travel to Micah and, like, hand him the ball. And then he'd block kids out and, like, let him shoot. I swear to you, because I know this, because I count, he, Micah went one for nine. On his ninth shot, he made it. And he was like, I can't do it. So it's just so fun to watch that, right? And I'm watching this kid being so sweet. And it's funny, that's his why. If you ask him right now, hey, what's your why? Why, why do you play basketball? Why do you shoot? Like, to get a donut, that's his why. As, as terrible as it is, and as bad as we are, that's his why right now. Now, Paul is doing that. He's saying, here's my why. Now, actually, it's in chapter 5, and I actually don't want us to forget this, because you'll probably remember this, hopefully. Chapter 5, Paul really gets to his why. Paul's like, the love of Christ compels me. Paul, why do you do what you do? The love of Christ compels me. I, I have to. The love of Jesus is so enwrapped in my heart, I have to do what I do. I can't not do what I do, because the love of Christ motivates me. But here's what we see, actually. We still see his why in another way. Paul tells us why he doesn't lose heart. He's like, here's why I don't lose heart. We see how I, why Paul keeps going. And Paul basically says it's because of the ministry. Because the ministry God has given me. The mercy God has shown me. So as we walk through this, I want to see what Paul's kind of like unpacking for us. Paul explains the ministry, myths around Jesus, whether by man or Satan. Just different blinders over their eyes. And then we're going to see the message, how Jesus Christ is Lord. So we're going to look at the ministry, the myths, the message. Can we do that? Let's look at verse 1. The ministry, the ministry. What is this ministry? Look at verse 1. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Number one, the ministry. Now, 
as we look at this, he says, having this ministry, you're going, what is this ministry? Now, Paul is going back to chapter three. Like every good pastor, they use the same joke when they see the word therefore, so I'm going to. It's like, when you see the word therefore, you got to ask, what is therefore, therefore? <laughs> Everyone needs somebody to do that. So when you see the word therefore, what is it therefore? He's saying therefore, in light of what? In light of what? In light of having this ministry, what ministry is he talking about? Remember last week, I'm not going to unpack it. Go back, listen to last week's message if you missed it. But he's saying the ministry of the new covenant is so much greater. This glorious covenant we have in Christ. Now, here's the point. Paul, remember, was comparing and contrasting just so you can see it. He's saying this ministry of life, not death. Righteousness, not condemnation. A permanent, not passing. Bold, not ashamed. Sight, not blind. Free, not bound. Trans Transformation, not information. Therefore, having this ministry, this ministry. He's like, this is the ministry we have. Do we know that w- what we have? There goes, therefore, having this ministry, this glorious ministry, by the mercy of God. Let's just walk through this verse, break it down. By the mercy of God. He's going, I have this ministry simply because of God's mercy. I'm called to this ministry because of God's mercy. That God's mercy led to Paul's ministry. That we would never have ministry if it wasn't for the mercy of God. We'd never get to be a part of this if it wasn't for the mercy of God on our lives. Paul's like, man, it's the mercy of God I get to be a part of this thing. It's the mercy of God I get to be a part of this glorious new covenant in Christ. I mean, I cannot stress that enough. It's the mercy of God in our lives that we get to be a part of this in any capacity. You guys got to know that you have this ministry, right? Like, this is not me. People are like, oh, you're called to the ministry. I'm like, what ministry are you called? We are called to the same ministry. The ministry, as we'll see even in five, the ministry of reconciliation to reconcile the world to God. Having this ministry, having this ministry, you are called to that same ministry that Paul is, that I am having this ministry by the mercy of God. It's interesting to me because Paul likes to connect ministry to mercy. Like he knows he's in ministry because of mercy. Actually, he says the same thing, but in a, like in a personal testimonial way in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Listen to this. We'll put the whole text up. Paul says, and just listen to it, like really listen to this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. Amen. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. That in me, first, Jesus Christ might show you all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul connects this ministry. I, he's put me into this ministry because of the mercy of God. I was once a blasphemer. I once dragged Christians out of their home to either throw them in jail or to kill them. I held the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. He goes, you better believe I have this ministry because of mercy. The idea is that ministry is only possible because of mercy. You see, ministry emerges from mercy. Ministry, ministry comes to this place like you've received the mercy of God, meaning we cannot take credit in any capacity anyway. If someone's like, if you've ever asked someone or maybe someone asks you like, why are you called to ministry? It's interesting how people can answer. It's like, well, I went to seminary and I got all these degrees. Like, no, no. like why are you like, called to ministry? Or they say, you know, maybe it's even calling. 
Like, well, I'm called to do this, which is true, which is a good place to start. But a better place to start even before your calling is because of the mercy of God. Like, before your calling, you could say, I- I'm in this just because of mercy. Because God saw what I was doing, and he, by his mercy, he pulled me out. That he lets me be in this ministry. I mean, he goes, it's actually unbelievable. We've attained this ministry by mercy. You know, I, you better believe that I am up here by the mercy of God. <laughs> like, it's on, on so many levels. Like, I remember in eighth grade being that kid who had to give the book report, and I'm holding my flashcards, and I did a terrible book report, a terrible book choice, and I got up in front of everyone, I read the title of my book, and I basically started crying and ran out of class. Like, in eighth grade, in eighth grade, the worst grade you could cry in front of people. Like, I've cried in front of my class, ran back, and I'm like, how do I go and show my face again? Like, I remember being in the bathroom, like, I can't go in there again. Like, it's awful. Like, that would never, I don't know if you guys, I watch too many kid movies because I have kids, but you guys seen Inside Out? Do you remember when she gets up to share? And then she's like, she starts crying, and then fear in her head is like, oh no, you're crying in school, right? And like, that's what I thought. Like, that's what I felt. I'm like, I'm crying in school. Worst thing ever, right? My point is, honestly, it's the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God. I'm up here. It's the mercy of God. It's not my cleverness, not my creative. It has nothing to do with anything. Mercy of God. This has not been my choice. <laughs> mercy of God, I've obtained this ministry. The mercy of God, you've obtained your ministry. The ministry of reconciliation, it does begin with mercy. I mean, this is just so, so key. And then here's his point. He goes, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. You see, it's easy, obviously, to lose heart in ministry. Like, if you get what Paul's saying, when it comes to ministry, it's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to get self-centered. It's very easy to get your eyes off of Jesus and maybe on more to the ministry than who the ministry's for. It's very easy to lose heart. If anyone should have lost heart, it would have been Paul. I mean, Paul was persecuted by Jews, like his own people. People vowed, we will not eat food till we kill him. The church is now slandering his name. If Paul was really an apostle, he would be here right now. The church is diminishing his name. The people he loves and just gave his life over to. I mean, you think about the external persecutions, internal from the church, internal in his own life. There's a thorn in his flesh that was just irritating him. We'll get to that later. But you think about if anyone should have lost heart, Paul, like you should have lost heart. I just think how Paul makes this connection. Paul had such a unique mindset in ministry. Paul's the guy that goes, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. He goes, I want to finish my race with joy. I want to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul had a really unique mindset. He's like, that doesn't move me. I'm not going to lose heart from this. Why? Because I realize I'm here because of the mercy of God. When I begin to lose heart, I realize this is all because of mercy. I even get to do this. Just interesting how mercy reminds you of like why we, why we do. So why do you do what you do? That question in the beginning, Paul goes, you know what, having this ministry by the mercy of God. This is why I don't lose heart. Because this is all mercy that I get to be a part of this and do what I do. He goes, you know, it's interesting. Again, listen to that phrase. Having, having this mercy. It's actually this, in the Greek, it's used in a way like having been mercied. Like he's been mercied. The mercy of God just placed on him. He goes, we do not lose hearts. You know, David said in Psalm 27, I would have lost heart. Listen to that. Paul goes, we don't lose heart. David's like, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your life. It's interesting, right? Paul's like, we don't lose heart. David's like, I would have, I would have. Me, unless, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. You see, this is what I think Paul had. He, he had that same kind of future vision, unless I had believed that, you know what, one day I'll see Jesus face to face. We don't lose heart. We have this ministry, because that's what we just said in verse 18, right? We're beholding Jesus in this mirror. But one day, for Sean says, we'll behold him face to face. He goes, I, I'm, I'm not going to lose heart. So Paul is ex- explaining this ministry that he has. 
this ministry that he got into because of the mercy of God. And now listen, around this ministry, there's always going to be false narratives. There's always going to be myths. There's always going to be people who butcher or tamper the word of God. There's going to be satanic attack on the word of God. And Paul looks at two different types of people in the church who tamper with the word and Satan himself who blinds people. So let's look at number two, which is myths. Let's read verse two. Verse two, he says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul, will go on to verse 3 and 4, but Paul first begins with people who tamper with God's word. Now, remember in chapter 2, verse 17, he's like, hey, we're not like those who peddle the word of God's. This is actually a similar idea. He goes, we don't tamper with it. Listen to this phrase again. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. He's like, we refuse to tamper with God's word. This is the position we're going to take here at the exchange. And hopefully you know that. We refuse to tamper with the word of God. We live in a moment where that's all we want to do is tamper with the Word of God. How can we make it more palatable to people? How can we make it more relevant to people? You know, it goes back to this wording that he uses in the Greek, literally going, we're not going to water down this message. That's the word he uses because people would take their wine and they would water it down so they could sell more of it, make more of a profit. So if I water this message down, maybe more people will will hear me. That's what Paul's saying. He goes, we refuse that. We refuse that. We're not going to tamper with the Word of God. This is one of those things early on where you have to know our heart. Our heart is that I don't believe the word of God is here to bind you. I don't believe the word of God here is to restrict you. I believe if we actually press into the word of God, you will feel more freedom, less anxious. You'll enjoy enjoy life in a greater capacity. So why would I tamper with this? I know that people tamper with the word of God because they think it will bring less freedom. They think maybe people can't handle it. I remember from a very young age, and not to put this up, but I remember it's like, Josiah, I remember like I was teaching middle schoolers, and I probably was guilty of this, like, you're, you're going maybe a little too deep. And I'm like, they can handle it! I don't know, I was probably a little prideful, honestly, and arrogant, it's probably bad. But in my mind, I was always being trying, like, they can't, they can't handle depth. And I'm like, no, people can. My thing is this, we, don't, we refuse to tamper, tamper with God's word. We really don't want to tamper with this. Why tamper with perfection? Like, why tamper with an inerrant, infallible word of God? Paul says we refuse that. We refuse that. Obviously, there's a temptation to want to tamper with it for many, many reasons. But the position we have to take is this. The reason why I want to spend so much time on this is I think it goes back to what Jesus said in Mark 8, 38. Jesus said this, for whoever is ashamed of me, and listen, and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. You know what that means? I don't want to be ashamed of Jesus or his words. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. Why would we tamper with this? Why would we mess with this? I mean, there's no room for us to mess with this. Amen? You see, there's going to be myths and false narratives around. And this is the thing. This was happening in the first two. The emphasis is more on the church, obviously. This is not even on outsiders. This is more on the church. This is more on believers tampering with the word of God, preachers tampering with the word of God. And he goes, that cannot be the position you and I take on this. You know, a couple thoughts just when it comes to this, when it comes to possibly tampering with the word of God. Um, here's what, what this might look like. This might look like when the church agrees with the world's philosophy on everything. 
You see, tampering with the word of God is when we say, well, what's in right now? Let's just jump in that bandwagon. Okay, this is in, this topic is what, okay, let's just jump in that. We're not going to do that. So what the world says about sex, life, marriage, money, gender, we're going to say, you know what? We cannot just jump on any and every bandwagon. I'm not ashamed of the words of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Matthew 19, where he goes, have you not read from the very beginning that he made them male and female? Have you not read that this covenant of marriage is for, for husband and wife, for male and female? Like, my thing is this, whatever the topic is, we go, listen, we're not going to be ashamed of this. Now, let me say this. We will gracefully and lovingly and humbly dialogue, and we want to listen well, and we want to understand someone's position. We don't want to just hit him with a bat over the head. We want to be gracious in our approach. But this is one of those things where I do look at Mark 8, 38 and go, I'm, I'm not and we cannot be ashamed of the words of Jesus. Actually, in fact, I think if we took them serious, you would experience more freedom and joy in life. And this is what Paul is saying. He goes, we're not going to tamper with the word of God. I think this also can look like when the church presents every week self-help and cliche statements rather than the gospel. What I'm trying to get out with this is that, listen, the gospel will benefit your life. Jesus, and, and think about this, the Proverbs, there's so much benefit for us to grow. Absolutely, we should grow. We should become the best version or true self that God has created us to be, absolutely. But I think what this can look like is when the gospel of Jesus gets forgotten only for the sake of kind of wanting to speak or preach on what people want to hear. And we don't want to just have cliche statements and slogans that are like partial truths. We go, you know, we want to preach through God's word. And at times that might be misunderstood, but we're willing to walk through that with people. And even that, guys, this is the thing. We don't want to be ashamed of that. Paul, Paul, again, we refuse to tamper with it. There's a side of it where like, guys, even for me, it's a humbling thought of my, of this. I don't want to tamper with this. <laughs> I don't want to say before God, I'm like, yeah, I just try to make it easier because it's, you know, I want them to be nice to me. Like, no, like I, we have to preach God's word. And I fully believe that if we actually give ourselves over to it, we'd see more freedom, more victory, less anxiety, more health and marriage relationships and life. Amen. This is God's word, which it brings a life. It says, now, so Paul looks at different uh, people who are trying to corrupt it in this way. But then in verse 3 and 4, he talks about not only are people trying to tamper it within, but Satan himself is trying to blind people without. So listen to this, verse 3. Let's keep reading. Uh, under myths, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He was not only the people within, but even Satan himself, the God of this world, is trying to blind the unbelievers to experience the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I do want to focus on this and think about this for a little bit, um, because this is just a really, really interesting phrase. That, my, that unbelievers' minds are blinded because there is satanic influence in the world. There's a spiritual realm you and I do not see, but that we participate in. And he's saying, in this realm, the God of this world has blinded their eyes so that they might not believe. And now we talked about this a little bit last week when he talked about the Jewish people having a veil over their eyes and that veil's not removed until they believe in Jesus. And then Paul does this. He does this also in Romans. He's like, Jews are guilty. Gentiles are guilty. All are guilty. He's doing that here. Jews' minds are blinded. Gentiles, we're all blind. Anyone who does not believe, their minds are blinded. Now, what does this look like? You know, this, I think this can come in many forms. How does Satan blind us or blind the minds of unbelievers? Even for us, you know, that's why we sing, like, I once was blind, but now I see. The idea is, is, is that. It's like we experience something that different where we go, how did I never see this? And now once I see Jesus, there's nothing else that just makes sense. There's nothing else I could live for. So let's just talk about this for just a second. What does this look like for Satan to blind just the mind of unbelievers? And what's our role in that? 
How do we battle that? How do we pray for God just to remove that veil? Just let the light shine in their hearts. That's just completely removed. And this is just really interesting. You know, this phrase, the God of this, of this world, let me just break that down. The word world is actually age or eon. So it's, he's saying the God of this time, the God of this world has blinded their mind. The, the God of this moment has blinded their eyes. Now, now a couple things with that. I want to say this. It's interesting when talking to people who blame God for everything. Like, if God is so good, why does he allow just evil, rape, murder, pain, racism, everything? If God is so good, why does he just not stop? Why is there so much? You know, it's interesting. This verse brought me comfort, honestly, years ago, where I go, I realize we're giving credit to the wrong person. The God of this age is the reason why we see these things. I really do want to think, going back to Genesis, God created everything good, perfect, beautiful, sinless, harmony, shalom. Satan comes in, it's corrupted. We see disease, death, murder, just sit on every level. You know, people like to blame God. Even for me, there's a side of it like, God, why would you? And then in reality, I go, oh my gosh, wait, I should attribute this not to God the Father, but to the God of this age. You know, and I think this is actually, for us, does something you go, wait a second, this, this, there, we live in a unique moment in time. Now, God, obviously, there's this redemption narrative happening where we're saved by the blood of Jesus. We've been redeemed. We're being redeemed. One day, all those things will be gone. But we live in this time where Paul refers to him as the God of this age. One author actually said this, because you're like, what does he mean God? It actually does use the word theos. Now, is Satan deity? No, absolutely not. Here's the context. Satan is called God because his deluded followers serve him as if he were one. Satan is the archetype of all the false gods and the false religions he has spawned. He's not deity. Satan is a created being. He's not, he's not God. He's not God's counter. Just understand that. But at the same time, he's referred to because this is the idols of people's hearts that have been created by the God of this age. You could say he's the God which many people serve and worship to this, in this day. Now, how does he blind people's eyes? Like, what does this look like? I think there's a lot of different ways this looks like. You know, I was thinking about just different ways Christianity's attacked, and it's so fascinating to me. Like, I'm always waiting for, like, a late-night talk show. I'm like, when are they going to take the jab at Christians? Like, I'm just interested by it. Now, because you can catch it in so many different ways. You know, Bill Maher, a late-night talk show host, in 2008 put out a, a documentary. I'm sure you, if you can call it that. But he called it religious, right? He took the word religious and ridiculous, and he's like, hey, religious. And, you know, he kind of goes, and he attacks other world faiths, other religions, but more than half is dedicated to Christians. And in this, and whether or not you've seen it or read about it, just the idea is he might attack Christians for, well, more pain, more mass murder, more evil things have happened in the name of religion. Or Christians have borrowed or sold from other things, other time periods. And it's interesting, right? There's actually phenomenal responses from brilliant men like Carson or Keller that respond to this, and we could speak into what religion has done. We could speak also how religion has built more hospitals and more orphanages and done more good than any belief. And actually, atheism has led about 60 million deaths in the last 100 years, and I think we could counter the argument. But it's interesting how Satan tries to just sow these seeds through documentaries, through editing it, through piecing it out, through interviewing the wrong, terrible ambassadors on behalf of Christianity, and you go, oh my God. Okay, it's very clever, his strategy. It's very clever how he might blind people to this day. I do think we should obviously be aware. I think just the simple fact where we talk with people on the street and they're like, no, I'm not a person of faith, I'm a man of science. And science tells me there can't be any God. And we're all like, I don't think that's a fair evaluation, right? And it's just funny how we kind of get in these dialogues about it. Let me just point something out. Jonathan Edwards, uh, in responding to a friend's like questions about this, he says, listen, listen, let's we'll put the three points. He, got, he goes, something exists. Something exists. Nothing cannot create something. Like, okay, I agree. Therefore, a necessary and eternal something exists. 
Now, one guy takes this a step further. Let's just break this down a little bit more. Let's look at this up the next one. Something exists. You do not get something from nothing. Like, okay. Therefore, a necessary and eternal something exists. The only two options are an eternal universe and an eternal creator. Science and philosophy have disproven the concept of an eternal universe. They believe it had a beginning. Philosophy and science would agree on that. Therefore, an eternal creator exists. Meaning, I understand there's different multi-universe theories, but it just keeps going and going and going and going and going. And here's the thing. Matter does not just come into existence. It has a beginning point. The point, though, is that God is not matter. God is spirit. God, who is spirit, can speak matter into existence. Because people ask the question, like, well, who created God? God's not matter, the way you and I think of this world and this universe. I get that they come up with this multi-universe, universe, universe thing, and keep going and going and going. And going. Maybe something has something that was self-existent. Maybe there's something self-existent. Yeah, his name is God. I love how one philosopher put it. Uh, his name is J.S. Mill. He's not a Christian. He was not a believer at all. But he just says, it is self-evident that only mind can create mind. And we got to think through this, right? My point is, obviously, there's going to be a lot of arguments for or against, whether it's theism, God, Christianity specifically. I think Satan's very creative, whether it's spiritually blinding people, and we need to gauge, absolutely, we always should engage spiritually through prayer, through God to open their eyes. We should engage through the Word of God. I do believe this. Listen, faith comes by what? Hearing and by hearing the Word of God. It's funny, I was talking to someone recently who said, I don't think people should put their views on other people. I'm like, are you trying to put that view on me? Right? Like, and that really just happened. And I'm laughing because we say these cliche things all the time and just don't consider the outcome of it. And what I'm trying to say is, no, we should actually share what you believe. Please. I want to know. We're called to herald the gospel. There's something about saying, let's talk about the person of Jesus. It is interesting when you introduce Jesus into a conversation. And, and it changes the dynamic. It changes how people hear him. What used to be a curse word, and you're like, oh, it's the most beautiful word in the world, Jesus. Right? And it's just crazy how it changes the dynamic in every single way. You know, I, I love, actually, Lee Strobel talked about his his conversion. Obviously, maybe you know Lee Strobel's story. He was an atheist journalist who was trying to, like, you know, disprove Christianity, like what happens with a lot of people. Here's what he said in the case for Christ, I believe. He says, essentially, I realized that to stay an atheist, I would have to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. Those leaps of faith were simply too big for me to take, especially in the light of the affirmative case for God's existence. In other words, in my assessment, the Christian worldview accounted for the totality of the evidence much better than the atheistic worldview. I do believe you, if you just sat down and counted the cost, or just looked at this in a different light, I think if our non-believing agnostic friends or atheistic friends just sat down and considered the evidence, they would kind of begin to see, wow, I don't believe unconsciousness creates consciousness. I don't believe chaos brings design or order. That doesn't make sense to me. Let's talk about this more. I, I do think we have some phenomenal arguments, but still, at the end of the day, Satan, he says, blinds their eyes. And I still believe there's a very much so a supernatural element when it comes to evangelism and sharing the gospel that we have to participate in. Because when I was reading this, I was just very like overwhelmed by this. I was brought to another verse in 2 Timothy 2.26. I didn't share this at the last service, but just listen closely. 2 Timothy 2.26, he says, Paul writes, correcting those who are in opposition that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been ta taken captive by him to do his will. Just thinking about how Satan blinds the eyes of unbelievers. According to Paul in 2 Timothy 2, there are believers who are actually taken captive by Satan to do his will. Just an interesting thing of like, wow, there really is a spiritual unseen dynamic happening.
I wish and I hope that we as Christians would realize we're not just trying to win the argument or go, oh, look at this good quote I have. I really actually hope we'd approach them with prayer and a sense of God. There's blinders over their eyes. I'm asking that you would just remove those blinders right now, Jesus. You know, I've been a part of a couple of conversations where I realize I'm getting into a debate which is not healthy. You know, I'll share one quick story and move on to the next point. I believe I was like 24, 25. I was with a buddy. Uh, is my lunch is like my lunch break. I was fasting this day, and I'm like, you know what? Instead of you know fasting, let's do Isaiah 58 and let's get food and bring it to a person. So I bought some food, brought it to a homeless guy, and I remember just like, okay, let's just talk to him, engage with him. And for like an hour, we just got into like a very unhealthy conversation. And I'm fasting, and I'm grumpy, and I'm like annoyed. I'm like, come on, just believe. You know, like it's just not going well. And I just remember like halfway, like more than halfway through, I was just like, Jesus, this is not working. I'm doing this in my flesh. Would you just please open his eyes? And I said, you know what? I'm starting off the wrong way. I go, let me apologize. Like this has been, I've been handling this all wrong. I go, let me just tell you about Jesus and what he's done. And just really walk through the gospel. And I just remember, it was just so clear today. He's just like, what'd you just do to me? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, I, I, think, I think this Jesus who he says he is. And I've, I don't know what I'm feeling right now. And I, I'll be honest, I've never had a moment like that. I'm like, oh my God. And I was just like, what do you do? So we started talking some more. And I go, there's there, God, the spirit, I believe, is right now here convicting and moving in your life. And he's, t- he's telling you, you need to believe in Jesus. And the man just started weeping, received Jesus. Let me just put this out. That's never happened since then. It doesn't happen all the time. But it's one of those things where you realize, Jesus, this is beyond me. I'm getting into like a debate right now that's not from you, that's not healthy. Hey, I just pray that you'd open his eyes. There's blinders over people's eyes. Maybe we should not, remember, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. There's a side of this where we gotta realize that there are blinders over people's eyes. What if the church engaged in prayer? What if we actually did what every revival leads to or begins with, which is prayer? I really believe whenever people or mass groups of people come to love Jesus, serve Jesus, live for Jesus, his always been birthed through prayer. Why? Because there's something supernatural blinding people, and the only way to engage is engaging with the supernatural, which is for us prayer. And I think that's what God is calling us to. Would you agree? I think it's the only way we can. You'll be hearing more, by the way, from our church about like how we want to develop our prayer team. I actually pray that you would really consider what that looks like. I would love to have more than two or three people at our prayer times. I think it'll be so powerful, and it'll begin there, and there, everything will be there just through prayer. So we see this. Number one, we see the ministry. We see the myths. We see all man tampers, Satan blinds. But what is this message? Paul's like, let me remind you the message we have. And verse five is like so incredibly clear. Listen to this, verse five, number three, the message. Here's what Paul says. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse five is probably the best summary of the message and of the ministry. I mean, actually, one author, uh, C.K. Barrett, said, it would be hard to describe the Christian ministry more comprehensively in so few words. Like, how do you describe all of it in such little words? Here's what he says, the message. We're not preaching ourselves. It's not about me. I hope that we do see, I hope that whether that's here or any church, it can't be centered on the messenger, on the preacher, because we're not preaching ourselves. You're making about the wrong thing. It's not about me. I'm going to come and go. I'm going to die. I'm going to be gone. We're making it about the person of Jesus here. See, we're not preaching ourselves, but what? Jesus Christ as Lord. I mean, think about that statement. That's heavy. This is a very 
I don't want to say triggering, but this would have been like a triggering statement for them, meaning if you lived in this culture and time period and you just come across the phrase like Jesus Lord, Jesus Christ as Lord, you would know what Paul's getting at, right? Because in this Roman time, in this period, yes, the Roman culture is very polytheistic, very open to other faiths, other beliefs, but over time, Caesar got a little, you know, jealous and said, okay, you can have your gods, but once a year you must show up to Roman officials and make the statement that Caesar is Lord, then you'll get your documents that you can buy and sell uh, as a Roman citizen. But but until then, until you say Caesar is Lord, uh, you're kind of like, you're not in a good place with us in the government and trading and, and business. That can affect your livelihood. So Christians were in a, a unique spot throughout just Roman history. Do we go up and say Caesar is Lord, get our papers, get our documentation, get our proof? Do we do that? Or do we say, no, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. I mean, that is a crazy humbling thought if we live in a day and age where it's like, get up and you better make this bold confession. And Christians are going, we just can't, we can't do that. And so actually Paul refers to this a lot of different times. Paul, he here just goes, this is what we're preaching. Jesus, Lord. He's Lord. That's what we're about here. Jesus Christ as Lord. Not Lord just in name only, but Lord meaning he has access to every area of my life, that he can do what he wants to do. What he says goes. I, I'm not the Lord of my life. I don't decide what's best for me. He's the Lord of my life. He decides what's best for me. He wants me to go here. I'll go here. He wants me to do relationships this way. I'll do relationships this way. He wants this part of my life. I'm going to give. I'm, everything's his. He is Lord. And Paul is saying, this is our message. We're not preaching ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. This is what we're preaching. Paul would say this more extensively in a passage you probably know pretty well. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Listen to how Paul says it here. Paul says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul, on the same issue, goes, Hey, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Meaning you right now, Roman citizens, whether it's Philippi or the Corinthians, you think Caesar is Lord, you make this confession, whatever it is, but we will all make this great confession, Jesus is Lord. I mean, that is an unbelievable statement. Think about that. He goes, whether on earth or under the earth, everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. Hey, Bill Maher, who made religious, you will confess with that same tongue, Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, you name a person, Jesus Christ is Lord. They're going to say that. It's crazy to think those who once used to curse him or belittle him or mock us with that very same tongue will say, Jesus, you are Lord. That's an unbelievable thought. I hear sometimes people mock Jesus, and I'm like, one day your tongue and your mouth is going to move like Jesus Christ is Lord. Like, you might mock him, but you're, it's going to do that. And it's crazy when you think about that, whether on the earth or under the earth. It's one of those things where I'd say, please confess Jesus as Lord here on the earth. You're going to do it anyways. <laughs> Why don't you do it willingly right now in faith? It's unbelievable. Paul says, this is our message. We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's our message. Jesus is Lord. And he goes, and we're servants. Listen to actually how he keeps going. This is really interesting to me. But we, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's a very humbling thing because he is, we are going to be your servants for Jesus' sake. Anyone who preaches the gospel, we're your servants for Jesus' sake. That is incredibly humbling, humbling thought when he's like, we can put sometimes pastors or people on a pedestal. In reality, they're supposed to be your servants. I'm supposed to be your servant for Jesus' sake. That's a crazy, thing. again, it takes the emphasis off of preaching yourself or on the messenger and back onto Jesus and saying, this is our role here. This is what this should like. This is what we're preaching here. 
Jesus Christ is Lord. If you believe that, would you just say that with me? Jesus Christ is Lord. Just say it with me. If you really believe it, just Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the message in which we preach, Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the message we preach. And then Paul, going back to, remember Satan blinding the people? He goes, you want to know what God does? You want to know how God can break through those blinders? Well, God can just speak. All right, look at verse 6. Verse 6, he says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is really interesting to me. Paul refers back, it echoes Genesis 1, where God says, let there be light and there was light. Or literally, he's saying, light be and light was. God just said light and there was light. If you know the creation account, God spoke light into existence way before there was the sun, a few days before. He just says, light be, light was. It's interesting because Paul's actually, and we'll look at this more next week, he's going to talk about the power of words, which is interesting. But Paul will basically look at creation. God just said light and there was light. Now, how does Paul do this? Paul relates creation to redemption. This is very interesting. Paul's like, when it comes to creation, God has said, let there be light and there was light. When it comes to salvation, God just speaks light into our lives and there's light. I mean, I really am fascinated by this. You know, I, I, I will admit, when it comes to salvation, studying it for like a long time, but in reality, I don't, I don't even know how to put it into words sometimes. I fully believe in the sovereignty of God, and I fully believe in our, our responsibility. And here's one of those things where I see God is so, so, God just says, hey, light being light was. God can speak someone who's in death into life. God can regenerate a heart and soul. In reality, we realize we're not saved by our works, but by the grace of Jesus. It's crazy to me because in this verse, here's what I see. We should be praying God speak light into that person's life. Like Jesus, Jesus, just say, light be right now over that person. Like, I love when I get with other believers who, like, talk about someone like they want to see come to know Christ, and it's so beautiful to me when you see them really believe, like, yo, I know Jesus is going to save them. Like, what do you mean? Like, I don't, I just know. Like, how do you, I'm fasting, I'm praying, my friends are. Like, I'm not sure when, but Jesus is going to save them. I'm like, this is so cool. It's like so refreshing. And then I come back like, Jesus saved them. You're like, yeah, you were praying specifically. You were going and and begging. Like, there's something about the Christian journey where God wants us to be a part of, I believe, this salvation experience where honestly, there's, there's a role you and I play. Here's the thing. God did not intend in God's sovereignty and just in, think about just God. I can just speak things in this. God does not just want us to sit on the chair and be like, all right, God, We'll just, you know, follow your, like, hope you do it. Like, he, we have to be active participants in this. I think sometimes the church, we can fall guilty of, well, God is sovereign. He's going to do what he wants to do. And so we just sit back and relax when God's like, I want to use you in this process. Like, I don't fully understand Daniel chapter 10. I don't understand Daniel fasting for 21 days and then an angel's released him to give him this message. I don't understand how Daniel's prayers change the spiritual realm. I don't fully get it, but I know that God wants to use us in it. And I really do believe that we as the church, just like that homeless man that day, I really do believe that we at church go, Jesus, we're going to just pray right now. I just beg, change the dynamics, change the conversation conversation. Speak life into this man. Let, just let him be born again. Because what is Paul saying here? Paul, if you don't get it, is referencing his salvation story, right? What happened to Paul? He's on his way persecuting Christians. And light be, light was, knocked off his high horse, essentially. He goes blind, right? And then a man comes, prays over, and the scales fall off his eyes. All that was to show, Paul, you were really blind. I blinded you so you could see. You thought you could see, but you were blind. I'm going to blind you so you can see. For Paul, what happened was, he didn't pursue Jesus. He didn't seek after Jesus. Paul wasn't like, I want to believe in this Jesus guy. Paul was actually doing the exact opposite, and the light of God shone around Paul. What did Jesus say? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Remember the light that shone on Paul that day? My point is unbelievable. I think verse 6, when he says, listen, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. That happened to Paul. 
The light of, of, of the gospel just shone into Paul that day on that Damascus road, forever changed, forever a different man. I, I just genuinely believe we should pray and participate in prayers like that. Like, God, I just ask you to speak life, like speak light into them. Let them be born again. Let them know you. Let them trust in you. You know, I think we can, I'm guilty of praying very general prayers of people coming to know Christ, but how do we get very specific? How do we engage with God in this? I really do see that this gospel message is incredibly powerful. So that light has shown the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. There's a side of this where if you maybe don't believe in Jesus, there's people, I believe, praying for you, which we have been praying for you by not, maybe not name, but just as you sit in the seat right now, that Jesus, that the gospel would just shine in their hearts, that they believe in you, they trust in you, that you would experience that, that we'd participate in that, that Jesus just saved people. I once was blind, but now I see. Let the gospel just shine in their hearts. I, I think sometimes we can try to take too much credit. Paul realizes, I was on my way that day to persecute the church. The light of God shone around me, and I believed. I surrendered. I, I caved. I'm all in. You know, it's just interesting to me. Like, I think our prayers should look like that desperate for some people. You know, it's funny. I've, I've got to pray with like some older like grandmas in the faith who I love it when like, they're like, can we pray for my grandson of being a youth pastor? That happened quite a bit. And I love like hearing their prayers. Like God, pray that my grandson, they'd say his or her name. And like, I pray that you just make their life miserable, that anything they touch would be cursed. I just ask that their relationship would end, that, that it would just be, it would be the most toxic thing in the world and that they'd come to the end of themselves and believe in you, Jesus. And I'm like, Part of me is like, I'm like, do I say amen? I'm like, you know, yes, amen. Like, I love it because the prayers were like, just whatever it takes for them to believe in you, Jesus. Make their life miserable if that's the case. And honestly, it is one of those things. Obviously, we, as a parent, I want to see my kids thrive. I want to see them grow, grow in just life and as just mature adults. But in reality, there is that thought like, Jesus, I would rather have that happen like than rather than being separated eternally from you. Meaning, do whatever it is you need to do. I'd rather have them be eternally secure and with you than, you know, they're, they're decent people. Like, there's a side of it where it's like, oh, there's those prayers of the sweet old grandma is going, you know, like almost cursing to blessing. I'm going, whatever it takes, like stop them on that road. Let light shine around them. I'm like, you know what? I can get behind that. Amen. Like, whatever it takes, Jesus. Because in reality, that's what we want. It's not just here, like, how can we have a good life now? How can we taste and see the Lord is good? How can someone believe and be regenerated and born again? How, how can we pr or pray just specifically for people? Just, Jesus, your light shine in their hearts that they might believe. Amen. Here's what's interesting. We just see the ministry that he has. We see different myths from man or Satan blinders. And then we see, obviously, the message that Jesus Christ is Lord. And church, again, myself included, this is less of a phrase and more of a lifestyle. This confession is just saying, Jesus, not only do I believe this with my head, but I believe it in my heart that you are Lord. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Righteousness is accredited to your accounts. It's unbelievable. You think about just that confession, that belief that leads to transformation. It's unbelievable. He goes, you're saved. This is what we're praying for people. Faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word. We're just going to preach the word. And as we preach the word, the light of the gospel will shine in people's hearts. Amen. We're going to end with just some time of worship and, and just, uh, just seeking Him. So, Father, we thank You so much for this time. We ask that anything that was unclear or said that was not from You, that that would be completely removed. Jesus, we have no desire to tamper with Your Word, but to communicate, to preach it. And Jesus, we do ask that the light of the gospel would shine in our hearts, that would not just be about others or thinking this is for someone else, but that, Jesus, Your light would shine in our hearts, in my heart, in everyone's hearts here, that not someone else needs to hear this, but Jesus, we would experience that.
we would be that someone else that we need this. We need the gospel to share in our hearts. And so, Lord, right now, we just want to sing, celebrate, worship you. Uh, We ask that as we look to you through song, through praise, that, Jesus, we could just behold your beauty, the beauty of the Lord. And we ask this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Hey, really,